see all of you here. Thank you to our worship team. We are in Ezra chapter 1 this morning, as Andreas mentioned. And uh, I'd just like to begin by reading this chapter, if I can get through some pretty big names. And uh, as I come to the end of the chapter, I'd like us all to say together, this is the Word of God, just as a way of acknowledging uh, the preciousness of these scriptures that we are about to study together. So I'm going to read Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin And the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So let's all say together, this is the word of God. Ezra chapter 1, we'd like to begin this Sunday in a new series through this book and the next book, Ezra Nehemiah, which some believe actually originally was one book. Um, We don't know exactly who compiled or wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. It seems like both of them uh, some of what we find in these books is autobiographical. They, they talk about themselves and they, they talk about I and we. But there seems to have been an editor who compiled all of these books together. <clears throat> What's important is the history of what we're reading about here. There's two things that I hope we can get from um, our series. I'm not sure if I'm not plugged in right. Rylan? Try that again. There we go. Here are the two things that I'm hoping we can uh, gain from this series. Number one is to revive our hearts with passion for God. Uh, This theme of rebuilding is one that's often encouraged and captivated God's people in different ways. And as we come through a a period of time in our history uh, that's been very difficult these last two years, perhaps for some of us, this is what we need. We need our faith to be rejuvenated, we need to be revived, we need to, uh, to refocus on what it is that God would have us do. And so we're hoping that could be true from this series. 
And then secondly, to renew our minds with the plan of God. And we see that unfolding so clearly here in Ezra chapter 1, that God has a redemptive plan that has, has been unfolding through history in which he has pulled strings and made things happen in order to fulfill his purposes. And that's still the case today. We're still living in a time when God is still doing that. He's bringing about his redemptive plan. He's bringing it to an ultimate conclusion. And we have the privilege of participating in that just as the people in Ezra's day did. So these two things are my hope for our series for myself and those who will be speaking next week, uh, Gord Martin will be with us, that we would have our hearts revived, revived with passion for God and that our minds would be renewed with the plan of God. So what is the plan of God? I put this little pictograph together and I've used it in different times and different places. It's very similar to the banners you have at the back, the series you went through, kind of going through the history of redemption a few years ago when Ron was still with us. Uh, so my pictograph is, is essentially the same. Uh, the top picture, we start at the top with a picture that symbolizes God, three in one, the Trinity. And then I move to the left, and the next picture is the globe, the earth. Uh, we think of God being creator of creating the heavens and the earth. He made everything in our world. He spoke it into existence. He said it is very good, and at its pinnacle was humanity, uh, the ones who were to be the caretakers of his creation. As we saw a few weeks ago, humanity was meant to live under the rule of God, under the blessing of God, infused with the very life of God. That's, that's what it means to be human. That's what human flourishing would look like. And yet, the next picture is the raised fist. And because Adam and Eve rebelled against God, chose to go their own way, stepped out from under the blessing of God, stepped out from under his rule, the catastrophic events of history have unfolded. And that next picture, the crevice, represents sin, the division between God and humanity, and then all of the breaking and the wreckage that has come from human sin all through history. So God has had a plan of redemption, and even before the events of creation and the fall unfolded, God, before time began, already knew about his plan of redemption and he began to put it into place. And so he takes Abraham, and the next picture, Star of David, represents the Jewish people. God takes one man, Abraham, and out of him makes a nation, and he says, you're my people. He brings them out of Egypt, and his, his intent is to, uh, to bring about redemption, not just for Israel, but for all humanity through his people. He wants them to be a light to the Gentiles. He's not only there to rescue them from Egypt and, and to be their savior, but, uh, but, but, but through them the whole world would come to know God's saving grace. But sadly, Israel failed time and time again. In fact, the history of Israel simply reinforces the fact that they, like all of us human beings, need salvation. We need a redeemer. And out of the nation of Israel comes the Redeemer. The next picture is Jesus. He is the promised Messiah, the King of Israel, the one that had been promised all through their history. And he comes on the scene and he announces God's kingdom and he does miracles and he teaches God's word. And incredibly, God's people, Israel, reject him and literally say, crucify him. And Jesus ultimately is put to death. And without realizing it, the Jewish people and the Romans 
uh, allowed his death to be the very sacrifice that humanity needed for redemption. And through his death and sacrifice, now all people everywhere can be saved. And so we have the cross. And on the other side of the cross, we have the cluster of people that represents a new people of God, a combined people of God, as we saw last week, Jewish people, non-Jewish people, who are united by faith in Christ. And the Bible calls this the church. We are the body of Christ. And we are heading, in fact, when you think about where we're, we're at in the redemptive story compared to where Ezra was at, and Ezra chapter 1 was at, we are so much closer now to the culmination, which is God united with his people for all eternity. God has always wanted a people for himself. That's why he created humanity in the beginning. And the culmination of his redemption is he has a people brought back to himself and he's united with them as husband and bride forever and ever in the kingdom of God. That's God's redemptive plan. I hope that that's, uh, that's clear to you. This is so helpful to me to realize wherever I read in the Bible, I'm reading about some point of time in this redemptive story of history. And I want us to see this as we begin to read in the book of Ezra. Book of Ezra, of course, happens down at six o'clock, down at the Star of David, during the period of the, of the, the time of Israel, in the Old Testament. And it's near the end of that time. It's after the people of Israel have, for generations and generations, uh, sinned against God, rebelled against God, and the northern people of, uh, of the northern tribes of Israel have long since been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes uh, that we, we would know as Judah, taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And Ezra breaks in after 70 years of captivity in Babylon and we find this incredible statement in verse 1. That in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation. Now we're going to see in a moment that the proclamation that Cyrus makes really makes little sense. If you know anything about that time period and the cultures of that period and the way that uh, kings operated during that time, uh, the, the decree that Cyrus announces here doesn't seem to even fit with that point in history. We'll look at that in a moment. But first, I want us to consider what, did, what was it that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet? What was being fulfilled here in this edict made by Cyrus about the people of Israel, and here it is. In fact, if you go back, I think it's Jeremiah 25 as well, you'll see some other things written there. Uh, this is a little passage that has some phrases and some verses that we really love, and we sometimes take them out of this context, but read this with me. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Do you know, in the book of Daniel, in the later chapters of the book of Daniel, uh, we, we read about Daniel who was reading in the book of Jeremiah and realizes 
the captivity is almost over. He's an old man by that time. And he realizes, wait a second, it's been about 70 years since Babylon took us into captivity, and he'd never seen this. He'd never noticed this before. Jeremiah had said it's only going to be 70 years. And so that's what Ezra chapter 1 is talking about as well. That this was part of God's plan. He had predicted this decades earlier. That the Babylonian captivity would last for seven decades. And then he would bring his people back to the land. And that is exactly what is happening here in this story. Now, let's, let's read again what Cyrus actually declares here. Because this, and we should be astonished by this. Cyrus, king of Persia, says, <clears throat> The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So first of all, we understand, in history we understand, that uh, the Babylonian empire came to an end when the combined empire, or the, what we call the Medo-Persian empire, the Medes and the Persians, came and conquered Babylon. And we know that from history. We know that that's true. So Cyrus, as a Persian king, has become the ultimate king over what used to be the Babylonian Empire, and actually the Persian Empire was going to end up expanding even far greater and wider <clears throat> than the Babylonian Empire. So that's why he says here, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Yeah, Cyrus is the most powerful ruler in all the world at that time. So he's given me all the kingdoms of the earth, he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. Now, I don't know how much of history you know, but what we need to see immediately is this is not normal. This is not the way that Nebuchadnezzar acted when he was the Babylonian king. In fact, I don't know in, until centuries later, and even more recently, rulers and emperors and kings do not treat conquered peoples in this way. So what was normal? What was normal is if you're a conquering king, you assimilate and exile the people that you've conquered. This is exactly what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel when the Assyrian king conquered that northern kingdom. What did he do? He took the people. Well, first of all, he killed probably thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of people. The Assyrians were known for absolute treacherous treatment of those that they, uh, those that they, that they conquered and captured. But the ones who weren't killed were taken into captivity. They were removed from their homeland and they were scattered amongst other places under Assyrian rule. And in their place, people from other places that Assyria had conquered were brought back to the land of Palestine. And what was the outcome of that? The outcome of that was the land of Samaria, which we know by the time Jesus comes, uh, the, the uh, people of Israel, the ones who considered themselves pure and pure ethnic Israelites, they hated the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans were these mixed people, mixed ethnicity of people who were part Jewish and part Assyrian and part whatever else. And why did rulers do that? They believed that if they assimilated conquered peoples, 
if they remove them from their homeland, if they, if they cause them to kind of intermarry and, and what's going to happen? They're going to lose their ethnicity. They're going to lose their attachment to their homeland. They're going to lose their attachment to their religion. And they'll be much easier to keep subdued. Because a conquering king is always concerned about one thing. Who's going to conquer me? It's nice when you're on top. But in that period of history, you were always looking over your shoulder. Sometimes it was to the neighboring nation. Sometimes it was, sometimes it was the guy that lived down the hall from you. Your, your, your son, your brother. Somebody was out to get you. So they treated people this way in hopes of subduing any kind of uprising so that they could hang on to power. And what did Cyrus do? He did the exact opposite of that. He liberated exiled people, and we know from history that it wasn't just the Jewish people that he allowed to go back to their homeland. There were others as well, and we'll see that in a moment. But clearly here in Ezra chapter 1, he is doing the opposite of what most kings of his period would have done. He liberated the exiled people. Most kings would destroy culture. They would destroy religion. Uh, they, would, they would bring back uh, furniture and fixtures and maybe even statues uh, from temples of conquered nations and bring them back and, and, and place them like war, <clears throat> war or, or victorious um, uh, rewards that they brought back from, from their conquering. What did, what did Cyrus do? He's literally allowing the Israelite people to go back to set up their temple. That's incredible. He's allowing them to practice their culture and their religion. And what does all of this do? It allows them to continue their own identity and their own culture. Most kings, if you kept people alive, why would you do that? Why would you keep exiles alive? Well, because you hope they're going to earn money and pay big taxes. And that's what happened. That's what happened when various uh, empires were established around the world, including the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. It's clear in the Gospels there was a lot of taxation. That's how they got rich. What did Cyrus do? He asked that people would give what might have been given to him in terms of taxes, and he says, "No, I want you to give. I want you to give financial help. I want you to give uh, livestock. I want you to give <clears throat> good gifts for the rebuilding of the temple." And then as I've mentioned already, most kings would keep the wealth and the valuables of conquered nations partly to enrich themselves, uh, partly as, as war treasures. And what did Cyrus do? He literally went back into the stores of treasures and retrieved all the things that Nebuchadnezzar decades before had taken from the temple of the Jews and he gave them back and he sent them back with the Jewish people for their temple. Uh, this is something that was found in the late 1800s. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, and before the days of the printing press, this is how they would often write things down. They would create pottery or something like this, and they would write on it. You can faintly see the letters and, and writing. And the Cyrus Cylinder describes, I believe from a Babylonian perspective, how benevolent Cyrus was to the conquered peoples under his rule. Doesn't literally mention the Jewish people on this cylinder, but it corroborates what we find here in Ezra chapter 1. This is the way that Cyrus worked. 
It's amazing. It's, it's incredible that, that at this point in history, a king would do something that is so not normal, so countercultural. Why did he do that? It's so clear in verse 1, isn't it? It's because the Lord moved his heart. The Lord moved his heart. Do you have confidence in God's sovereign rule over the world, over everything, over your life? Because we need to. We, we need to understand that God is in absolute control. This redemptive plan that we've been talking about is relentlessly being carried out by God. <clears throat> and let me show you one of the ways that we can be most amazed by this. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, mentions a fulfillment of what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. Let me show you what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote at the beginning, or just before, the Babylonian captivity. Ezra was written at the end of the captivity, long after Isaiah has died. And listen to the words that God says through Isaiah. The Lord says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Do you see what this is? This is a prophecy God gave through Isaiah decades before anyone had heard the name. Well, maybe they'd heard the name of Cyrus, but they hadn't heard of this Cyrus. This Cyrus that we're reading about in Ezra 1.1 had not been born yet. And God is calling him out by name. Does this not encourage our hearts when it comes to the promises of God? And think of all the promises and all the prophecies that the Bible has laid out that have yet to be fulfilled, and this one reminds us that they will. He goes on, actually. The, he names Cyrus at the end of chapter 44, and then he continues to talk about Cyrus into chapter 45. Uh, verse 5 is interesting. He says of Cyrus, you've not acknowledged me. So let's not think for a moment that Cyrus somehow had become a believer in the Jewish God. No, that's not what's happening here. And then look at verse 13 of chapter 45. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. Not his, my righteousness. <clears throat> I will make his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But notice this. But not for a price or reward. In those days, if you were a king, whatever you did, there was always a reason, there was always a catch, there was always something in it for the king. And look what God says, I'm going to make Cyrus do this and he's not going to get anything out of it. He's not doing this for a price or for reward. He's not doing this for some personal gain. It's because I, in my sovereign plan, will ensure that he does this. That's why the book of Proverbs says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. We've got to believe this in our time, Right? It's still true today, and the New Testament affirms this today, that the, the authorities, the political authorities that are in place today are still in place under the sovereign hand of God. And when we find the New Testament telling us how we should behave and respect and honor our governments, we remember that those words were written during the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire. When the head of politics of that era called himself a god, the emperor. That was false worship. 
when some of those emperors like Nero at the end of the New Testament period would literally be slaughtering Christians by the hundreds and thousands. And yet the New Testament writers, following in the path of Jesus, could set an example of honoring the government and honoring the king in spite of in spite of themselves. And one of the reasons that we are to do that is because we're recognizing the sovereign hand of God. Does that mean that godless politicians who don't, don't believe in Jesus and don't honor the word of God and don't honor the Lord, that they're somehow doing right? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But they're still in the hand of God. And God is fulfilling his purposes even through the wicked rulers of history. That's what he's doing with Cyrus. So here's, here's the lesson here. God is continuously at work fulfilling his plan of redemption for humanity and all creation. So we look back in history and we see that star of David and we can read in the Old Testament about the history of Israel and the relentless fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and even before Abraham. And it's all being fulfilled. Let's think for a moment about these people who return. Verse 5 tells us about those people in Ezra chapter 1, verse 5, the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, those two southern tribes, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Verse 6, all their neighbors assisted them, just like Cyrus had decreed, with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. So who went? It tells us who went. Tells us about the family heads, tells us about the priests and the Levites. Notice the phrase, everyone whose heart God had moved. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah actually catalog the numbers of people and the various tribes and family heads who returned. And there were thousands and thousands of people who returned to the land of Israel. But here's what we need to understand. It, it was a fraction of the Jewish people who returned. Sometimes in the Bible, when we talk about these things, we talk about a remnant, a small number of people that God raises up to carry out his redemptive purposes and his plans. That's what happened here. It was a fraction. We don't know how many people, how many Jewish people were living in Babylon and spread out throughout that, uh, throughout that empire. Clearly the people kept careful records. Many of them were careful to, uh, to, to marry other Jewish people because they were wanting to be very careful to maintain the, their ethnicity. And so they had records and they knew. But only a fraction of those people returned. When God in his sovereignty amazingly turned the heart of a pagan king and said, you can go home and rebuild your temple. It was a fraction of the people who said, I'm in. Now, it's really easy for us to look at that and say, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you go back? Well, <clears throat> if you were 80 years old, you might not be sure if you can even survive the trip. There were probably some pretty legitimate reasons why some people decided they needed to stay, and actually God probably used 
Jewish people, like Esther, for example, who was a Jewish person with Mordecai who ended up staying in, embedded in the Persian Empire, didn't go back to the land of Palestine. God still used them to be a light. But I'm sure many others found other excuses. And it's not like it was easy. Because to return to Jerusalem meant this. You're moving back to a city in ruins. There's no place of worship. And there's no protective walls around that city. There are enemies. Ezra and Nehemiah is going to be very clear that there were people around the city of Jerusalem living in that region who hated the Jewish people and who did not want to see the temple rebuilt and the people restored. So that's what you're signing up for. You're moving back to a city in ruins with little protection from your enemies. You're going back to prioritize building a house for God. Not, not building your house. Not, not building a name for yourself. Not building a kingdom for yourself. You're going back for one reason, and that is to rebuild the temple of God. To go back means you're leaving stability and security. God had actually told his people that in the land of Babylon they should marry, they should, they should find work, they should raise families, which is what, what they did. And so now you're leaving behind your job, your livelihood. And for many of them, to leave, to go back would mean there's family, there's friends that you will never see again. So this was no small thing. It, was, it wasn't a no-brainer for many of these people to think, yeah, I'm in for this. But the reality is there were many people whose hearts were unmoved even though their God was the true God of heaven and earth. Even though going back and rebuilding the temple was part of the redemptive plan of God because God's plan was to send his king, his Messiah, to stand in that place, in that temple and to declare the name of God and to declare the good news of redemption and the kingdom of God. So someone had to go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple because the king was coming. To return to Jerusalem was to recognize the opportunity to participate in what God was doing in God's redemptive plan as his people. And so as I finish today, I just simply want to park on that powerful phrase, everyone whose heart God had moved. And I want us to ask ourselves here this morning, is there anything stirring in our heart? Can we look back in our history and see a place, a time, a point when God was stirring our heart? When we realize the things of this earth need to grow strangely dim and I need to I need to follow Jesus is there anything stirring in your heart today or even as you hear the story of Ezra and consider the incredible faithfulness of God to bring about his redemptive plan and to know why are we sitting here today it's because the plan is still unfolding and there is still work to be done. God is still doing his good work. And we are getting closer and closer to the culmination of all things. Every day we get a little bit closer. And here's what's amazing. 
that cluster of people that we saw on that pictograph about God's redemptive plan, that's us. And there is a purpose for those people. And we have the opportunity to participate in God's redemptive plan. Just like the the people of Ezra's time had the opportunity to participate, to literally be the hands and feet to rebuild the temple that the Messiah would one day visit. And what does God say to us? We saw, we saw this last week, actually, that there is another kind of building that is underway. And the people of God, we ourselves, are the temple of God that is presently being built up into a spiritual house to be a dwelling place for God. We have the opportunity to be that, and we have the opportunity to build that. So I just got to ask us, like, are we? Is there any priority in our hearts that says, I want to be a dwelling place for God? I want to build a dwelling place for God. A local church is meant to be a building. Not, Not the physical building, but the people are meant to be the temple of God, God dwelling in our midst. What does it look like for us to participate in God's redemptive plan right now? Because God is inviting us to participate just as he invited the people in Ezra's day to participate. Has God stirred our hearts? I would say that the discipleship path is a very simple simple and sinful, simple and helpful diagram to show us what it looks like to participate in the plan of God. It starts, of course, by responding to the redemption that God offers each of us. If we're separated from God or if we're searching, we have to come to the cross. We have to come to the place where we acknowledge our need of a Redeemer, of a Savior, of course, and that is Jesus, who gave his life so that we might live. So we come to the cross in repentance, turning from our sins, and by faith, receiving, trusting God and all that he offers us in Christ. And that puts us on a journey And to participate in God's redemptive plan is to understand that he is changing me and he's transforming me and he wants me to be more like Jesus. And I best represent that redemptive plan and put it on display the more my life reflects the life of Jesus. And so, God, I hope God is stirring our hearts to pursue Christ, to follow him, to be changed into his likeness. And as God does that, We look around at at this group of people, this building that we're part of, these living stones all around us, and we hear God say to us, build each other up. And we recognize that God has given us spiritual gifts and God has given us responsibilities, and so we serve one another and we love one another and we bear each other's burdens. Why? Because as we do that, we're helping others uh, pursue Christ and grow into the image of Christ. As we love one another, we're putting the kingdom of God on display in a way that shines brightly, gloriously to the people around us who say, what is it about you people? How do you love each other so well? To to participate in God's redemptive plan is to put our arm around some young believer and say, come, follow, let's follow Jesus together. To participate in God's redemptive plan is to reach back beyond the cross. And to find those people who are lost, 
and hurting who desperately need a Savior. And the reason we are still here today is because God is still saving people. And he says to us, you get to do this work. I've often said it's so interesting to me how when Jesus was here and he'd be walking along and some demon-possessed person would see him and they'd start yelling out loud, I know who you are, you're, you're the Messiah, you're Jesus. He'd say, be quiet, that's not your job. It's our job. It is our privilege to be the lips and the tongues that speak the name of Jesus so that others can know him. Has God stirred your heart to participate in his redemptive plan? That is our grand privilege today as his people to do his work for his glory. May God make it so. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up for a closing song. And as I do that, let me just pray. God, we thank you for the book of Ezra, for the incredible plan that unfolds in this book. We see your sovereignty, your power, your rule. Thank you, God, for how you used a pagan king, in spite of himself, to bring about your plan of redemption. God, why is it that so often when you use people, you use them in spite of themselves? Why is that so often true of us, and yet it is, it's true of me? Lord, I would pray today that you would stir my heart and all of our hearts here, Lord, to be amazed again at your amazing grace and at the wonder that we get to be shoulder to shoulder with you as your people, fulfilling your redemptive plan in a different time, in a different way. Ezra's people were exiles going home. You tell us we are, we are to live as exiles in a foreign land until you return. And so, Lord, would you help us to do that faithfully, to shine the glory of the gospel as we love each other, as we serve each other, as we share your good news. Stir our hearts to this great task, Lord. Help us to say yes to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.